responsibility, and, and I've got these kids, and I, I've, got to, uh, I've got to take one of the parachutes. So he grabs the parachute and jumps out of the plane. And then the smartest man in the world, he says, he says, wow, I've got all of this knowledge. I've got to share with the world. I, I've, I've got to have a parachute. So he grabs a parachute, and then he jumps out. And then the pilot looks at the kid, and he said, well, there's only one parachute left. He said, kid, you, you take it. You jump. I've lived a nice, full life. And to that, the, the Boy Scout said, he said, don't, don't worry about it. There, there's two parachutes left. The smartest man in the world just grabbed my backpack, and he jumped out of the plane. So that story shows us that uh, pride, as the Bible says in Proverbs, pride proceeds the fall. And I wonder how many of you guys have pride in your life. Tonight we're talking about pride versus humility. So if you've got some pride, raise your hand. Okay. Pretty much everybody. Everybody, we all do. And, and the thing is, when we think we don't, what happens? We become proud of our humility. And, and if you're thinking this evening, gosh, you know, I've got these financial burdens, I've got these relationship issues, I've got these mountains that are blocking my path, I've got some momentum issues, I really need some momentum, uh, my heart is weary, I need to be encouraged. I, I wasn't really expecting to come out and hear about pride or humility, but in reality, that's what you need more than anything else. Because look at this, right here, we read in uh, the book of James, chapter 4, verse 6, you can cross-reference this with, with 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God opposes the proud, that word opposes or resists, it's a military term, it means that God suits himself up in full military array to oppose the proud, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, the Bible says if we humble ourselves in the Lord, he will lift us up if we humble ourselves before the Lord. Humility is that rock that is unsinkable when everything around us is, seems to be going down. Humility is that rock that is unshakable when the world around us is shaking. What you need more than anything else for the peace of God, the strength of God, the power of God in your life, the momentum of God at your back is to find that place called humility so that he can lift you up. Where I live, uh, the, the ground, it, there's a downward slope. And I've noticed when it rains, the water always finds the low places and fills it up. The water always finds the low places and fills it up. In the same way, the peace of God, the presence of God, the power of God always finds the low places. And he fills them up with his strength, his peace, his power. The low places are those who have made themselves humble, those who have humbled themselves before the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, as we continue through our series, we are now in the book of Philippians. So we're in Philippians chapter 2. And as you're flipping to Philippians, um, just know that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking that you're, you're, you're not an incredible person. How could we possibly think that? We were bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. We are forgiven of all of our sins. We are the very righteousness of God. We are children of God. We are holy and pure. We can, through Christ, we can boldly access the throne and make our requests known. The Lord delights over us with singing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. How can we not think we are absolutely incredible? We are bought with the price. We are priceless. We are treasures. The Lord loves us so much. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves than we should. Humility is simply not thinking of ourselves at all. Because we are so consumed with Christ 
Therefore, when we are not functioning in humility, we can be arrogant and look down our noses at people, but also on the opposite end of the spectrum, when we are not functioning in humility, we can also be walking around in fear and, and timidity and because we're so self-conscious. I think that one of the greatest definitions of humility is this versus pride. Pride is the admission that I have not seen God at all. This is a really profound definition of pride. Pride is the admission that I have not seen God at all as testified by my actions or prayerlessness. Humility, on the other hand, is that instant right-sizing that occurs when I get an eyeful of His majesty and glory. Pride is the admission that I have not seen God at all. In other words, when we think that we have the starring role in our own story, we are admitting that we have not been blinded by the brilliance of His pure glory and His story. When pride causes our hearts to fill with that subtle and gnawing sense of anxiety so that we constantly think that we have to strive in order to be accepted by God, we are admitting that we have not been immersed in the ocean of His grace. When pride allows our heart to become calloused and cold to the brokenness around us, we are admitting that we ourselves have not been overwhelmed by the sheer force of His love and mercy. When pride causes us to use our words like a weapon so that our tongue is sharp and abusive and abrasive and we tear others down, we are admitting that we have not been pardoned and empowered by His mercies that are new every morning. When pride causes our heart to be resentful and bitter towards somebody who has offended us, we are admitting that we ourselves have not been healed and made whole by His unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Pride is that admission that I have not seen God at all. And again, humility is the instant right-sizing that occurs the moment that we get an eyeful of His majesty and glory. Take Saul of Tarsus, for, for example, who, as the Bible says, breathing out violence against the church. So filled with himself, so filled up with his pride and arrogance and credentials, and he was on the road to Damascus to continue his persecution on the church, and he was knocked off his high horse by a blinding light, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in that instant, everything was right-sized and put in its proper perspective. And from that moment on, Saul's prideful heart was replaced by a humble heart, and he lived as a willing bondservant to his Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of his life until he gratefully gave his life for the name of Christ and the cause of Christ. You look at Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah was so filled with sorrow and remorse in the year that King Uzziah had died, and nothing seemed as it should have been. But in one moment of a glimpse of His majesty and the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Isaiah fell upon his face, and the things of this world grew strangely dim, and his burdens were driven away by a sense of humility as he was enraptured by an eternal calling, and he responded, Here am I, Lord, send me. Or remember Elisha's 
servant who looked around at so much fear that surrounded him and his opposition that seemed stronger than him until his eyes were opened up and things were right-sized as he caught an eye full of his majesty's angels that were encamped around him and the fear was driven away and he had peace. And I believe that what we need more than anything else this evening is humility to flood our hearts because we got an eye full of his majesty and glory and grace so that we see everything as it is. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 through 11, and if the scriptures were a mountainous landscape, I believe that Philippians 2, 1 through 11 would be one of the very highest peaks in all of scripture with its beauty and theological meaning and life application and its just, just sheer staggering wonder of what it reveals about God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In relation with one another, have the same mind as Christ, the creator of all things, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in the human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jehovah's Witness may come to your door and say that Jesus wasn't the God, he's a God, he became a God, just like we can become gods, little g gods, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus started as God from the beginning of days, uh, in eternity past, he's always been God, capital G God, it's all throughout scripture, and this exalted God humbled himself and became flesh and lived among us and made his dwelling among us. And then God the Father, because we believe in God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, exalted the humbled Christ. Verse 8, and Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The exalted Christ humbled himself more than anybody has ever humbled himself. And God the Father exalted the humble Christ higher than anybody has ever been or will ever be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a passion for humility of all things. To see you high and lifted up. To catch a glimpse of your glory, your beauty, your majesty. And to catch a glimpse of your humility. And to catch a glimpse of your resurrection power that rests upon the low places, and those who make themselves low, those who humble themselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to glean three prayers from this example of Christ's humility. And it's three prayers because this isn't about, okay, guys, maybe you've got some pride, so you need to be humble. Okay, this is a huddle, ready, break. Here's our action plan. You guys go be humble. Instead, this is more about a prayer because what we need to take place in our heart is something that we can't manufacture. We need a transformation in our heart. We need a right-sizing in our spirit. 
We need a glimpse of his glory. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work in our life so that, like Saul on the road to Damascus, we are knocked off of our high horse and we surrender the reins of our life to Jesus Christ and we devote ourselves to his glory and his purpose and his passion. And like Isaiah, we need a proper glimpse of the glory of God so that we fall upon our face before the living God and we are undone and then we are transformed by the gospel. So this is less about action steps and we have action steps around here, but this is less about action steps as it is prayers. And so we're going to pray three prayers. And the first prayer is this, Lord, give me an eternal perspective. Lord, give me an eternal perspective. See, have you guys ever seen that show, um, Name That Tune? It's an old one. It was like a game show. And if you recall, there was, they, they played a, just a glimpse, just a fragment of the song. And the less of the song they played, the better. Maybe it's just a couple of beats of a song. And it sounded like, you know, it could have been any thousand songs, but the people would guess that song that it came from. You see, that, that sample of the song was only just that. It was a sample of a greater song. And in the same way, we have to get beyond our lives, which is just a sample of the greater life, and we have to live for the greater life, the eternal perspective. For example, if we were to drain all of the water from the Pacific Ocean, we would have a really big canyon, wouldn't we? We would, in fact, have the biggest canyon on the entire planet. And then, if we were to fill this canyon up with sand all the way to the top, that would be a whole lot of grains of sand, wouldn't it? And then, say, we were to stack on top of that sand that's at sea level a mountain of sand that was taller than any mountain anywhere. It was towering above the Himalayas. Well, that would be a, a lot of sand. That would be a lot of grains of sand. And then... If a bird were to come and fly and land on the top of that mountain of sand and with its beak just grab one grain of sand and then carry that one grain of sand off away somewhere and then 100,000 years later that same bird would fly back, land on top of that pile of sand and get a second grain of sand and carry it away somewhere and 100,000 years later that bird would come back and get a third grain of sand and carry it away. And if every 100,000 years that bird came back to get one more grain of sand and carry it away, finally, when all of the grains of sand were gone, you will have just been in heaven for your very first second. This is the scope of eternity. And yet we get so focused on time and our houses and our jobs and careers and what people think of us or what somebody said of us. And the first step of humility is not to live for time, but to live with an eternal perspective. When I travel somewhere, I take a suitcase, I live out of the suitcase. I don't, I don't make my home there. I, I, I try to be comfortable to, to some extent, but, but I simply live out of a suitcase. We're sojourners here. We're pioneers. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We're not to be too comfortable. We're to live not for this time, but we're to live for eternity. 
realizing that our lives are just a small sample of the eternal story that's been happening before us and the eternal story that will continue on after us. And this is the eternal story we read in Revelation 4, right? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the eternal story that's been happening in past. This is the eternal story that will continue to happen. Our life is just a fraction. It's not even a grain of sand within a grain of sand. It's just a speck. And an eternal perspective is the beginning of this wisdom. An eternal perspective is this, the beginning of humility. So that we start to live for the host of heaven and the glory that they are attributing to Jesus Christ. When we have this eternal perspective, it's really difficult to be offended by the way somebody looks at us. When we have this eternal perspective, it's really difficult to be offended by what somebody said about us or did to us. When we have this eternal perspective, it's really difficult to be depressed because we think our house isn't nice enough or our clothes aren't nice enough. When we have this eternal perspective, it's really difficult to be prideful because we think our house is nice enough or our clothes are nice enough. When we have this eternal perspective, it's not that we think less of ourselves because we are valuable. We are bought with the blood of Jesus. It's just that we think about ourselves less and we think more about the eternal story in which we've been invited to be part of. I remember when I first signed up for the eternal story. When I said, this world has nothing for me. This world has nothing in it that can cause my heart to beat with passion. This world has nothing in it that I believe is, 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 is a worthy pursuit for the one life that the King of Kings has given me to live. And I signed up for the eternal story. To bring glory to Christ. To know Him more than I ever have known Him. And to make Him known as broadly as I can. And I said, Lord, whatever my life is, it's yours. Use it for your eternal story, for your glory. It was back in my college days when I was a Young Life leader. and I would go to the first lunch and then second lunch. My goal in going to the lunches was always to meet kids from every, every group. I would try to meet kids and carry on conversations with the cool table, the cheerleading table, the athletic table, the nerdy table, the, 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 the gang table, the, the table that they all dressed in black and they wore leave me alone on their shoes and forehead, that table. And I would just go visit with them and, and hang out with them and try to build a relationship and invite them to Young Life. Well, there was first lunch. I would go hang out and meet kids at first lunch. And then there was second lunch. And I had some time to kill in between first and second lunch. And uh, I, I was too far to go home, too far to go to school. And so what I would do sometimes was I would go to a cemetery that was nearby. In fact, it's where Lee Harvey Oswald is buried. It's an unmarked grave because people would mess with the tomb. I would just go there and I would pray. And I would pray... God, use my life. God, use me in young life. God, help me to introduce kids to you. I would just pray. And in this season, I was working a couple of jobs, uh, trying to get through college, and my grades were slipping. I was trying to keep them up. I was studying business finance. And, um, but my real passion was young life, and I was vested in young life. And that was uh, maximizing most of my time, um, young life, and seemed to be generating the least amount of results or fruitfulness. And I was on the verge of quitting, and I said, God, I, I, um, I, I, 
I, I think I just need your wisdom. What, what do you want me to do? And, and I would go to this cemetery and I would pray. And the, the quietest place in the cemetery, there was this big tree. It was like right in the center. It was away from the, the, the busy streets. And there was this big tree and I would go sit under and pray. And, and right over here to my right was this tombstone on the ground of a kid named Douglas Ray Trantham. And Douglas Ray Trantham was born, I think, in 1929 or 30, and he died in 1945. And his picture was embedded onto the tombstone in marble. And um, he reminded me of, from Leave it to Beaver, Wally Cleaver, his slick back black hair and these big teeth and a big smile. And, and I, I would sit there and, and I would pray. And, and I was praying, God, what do you want for my life? And God, use me for your glory. I had a vision. And... I thought of Douglas Ray Trantham, and I thought, he's been gone now from this earth for about 45 years. I wonder if he knew that his 15th birthday would be his last. And then I thought, I wonder where he is now. And I wonder where he will spend eternity. And I thought of Mr. and Mrs. Trantham, who passed away in the uh, mid and late 70s who were buried back behind me. And I thought, I wonder where they are right now. And then I looked at, at the row after row of marble signifying people who lived, who breathed, who laughed, who cried, who dreamed, who died, whatever their life was, ultimately, it was a vapor. And I looked at that marble stone, and I thought, I wonder where that soul is, and I wonder where that soul is, and I wonder where that soul is. And then I began to think of all of the kids that I've been building relationships with in young life. April and Laura and Nick and June and, Nick and, and Clint. And I, I, I thought, I, I wonder where they are going to spend eternity. And right then I told the Lord, I said, Lord, whatever else my life is about, whatever vocation you would have me pursue, God, that's just up to you. But I pray that ultimately you would use my life to bring people into your kingdom before they pass from these inevitable doors, from life into eternal life through these doors of death. And I just wonder, are you living with an eternal perspective? As testified by one of the realities that, is te that testifies that you're living with an eternal perspective is that you see souls, not people. You don't see status. You don't see cool or uncool or rich or poor. You just see souls who are going to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell, souls who know Christ or who don't know Christ. Another testimony that you're living with an eternal perspective is that you have thick skin. You're not easily offended. Another testimony is that you have a tender tongue. You use your words as life to build people up, not to tear people down because you realize how precious a soul is and how these things that we have called words can either curse or bless and during this season, I prayed, oh, God, use me to introduce people to you. But also, I pray, God, that I would never allow a word to come out of my mouth that tears somebody down. Oh, God, let any word that comes out of my mouth bless and build people up. As we read from Scripture, that from the same mouth comes words of life and death, blessing and cursing. Brothers, this should not be so. I'm not always 100% successful in this. Sometimes I do allow my words to be a weapon instead of a healing balm. But when I do make that mistake, for whatever reason, I'm grieved and I quickly try to make amends. Are you living for an eternal perspective, for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of souls, for the healing of souls? And so let's pray, Lord, give me an eternal perspective. Secondly, let's pray, Lord, 
give me a tender heart. Let's go on and look in verse 6. Who, Jesus, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And how can we live with a tender heart? One, we just have to see beneath the surface and the people in our lives. There's a story that Stephen Covey writes writes about a true story. He was on a subway, and there's this man who had a couple of kids who were totally out of control, and it was annoying everybody. And so Covey writes, finally, after what I consider to be an unusual amount of restraint and patience, I finally spoke up and said what everybody was thinking. I said, sir, do you think you could control your kids a little better? And to that, this man, is like he, 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 he was um, snapped out of a trance. And he said, I, I'm sorry, I, we're just coming back from the hospital where their mother died, and the kids aren't handling it very well, and I guess I'm not either. He said, at that moment, in a second, everybody's paradigm shifted. And he said, now, that instead of everybody being annoyed, they're trying to tend to the kids and help the man out with the kids and ba- play with the kids, and they're attentive to him, and they're compassionate, and their whole countenance shifted. And one of the ways to have an eternal perspective is to see beneath the surface. And remember that hurting people hurt people. If somebody is sharp and abrasive and belittling, and they tear down, and their words are weapons, not a healing balm, know that hurting people hurt people. There's a hurt that's creating that hurtfulness. And have eyes to see beneath the surface so that you can be a healing balm and an instrument of, of, of Christ-like healing and love in their life. But not only that, see beyond the wounds. When Jesus was on the cross, the ultimate display of humility, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what's so remarkable about that is everything that took place in the passage before Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They weren't praising him. They weren't worshiping him. They weren't in awe of him. They weren't grateful that he was atoning for their sins, exchanging their life for his own. And so Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as I pay for their sins. No. Before that passage, they're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. They spit on him. They're gambling for his clothing. They're vulgar, they're crude, they're, they're, they're disrespectful. And then we read, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that prayer, if it were you or me, could have well been otherwise, couldn't it have been? And that prayer could have been, Father, unleash that legion of angels on this crew for my deliverance. That prayer could have been, Father, Open up the floodgates of divine retribution and pour out wrath on this group. That prayer could have been, Father, I'm done with this. Get them. And how often is that our prayer when we're offended? But we have to focus on Christ. And we have to respond to the hurt in our life by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You say, but you don't understand what they did to me. How can I forgive that? 
all the more reason to forgive that. Because the deeper the wound was, the more it can control your life. And the only way that you and I will ever be detached from those offenses so that it can't hurt us every single day is if we let them off the hook. And as the saying goes, when you forgive somebody, you release a prisoner to realize that you were the prisoner all along. And so we say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That doesn't mean that you have to be accountability partners with them. You see, reconciliation is a two-way street. Reconciliation, it's, it's in degrees of proximity. And in order to reconcile with some offenders, then they have to be re- repenting. They, they, they have to be sorry. They have to be remorseful for their offense. And, and then I can reconcile. Reconciliation is a two-way street. It's between them and me. This is reconciliation. But if they're not remorseful, if they're not repenting, then I don't necessarily have to reconcile depending upon what the nature of the wound or offense might be. But whereas reconciliation is a two-way street, forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation is between them and me, but forgiveness for their offense upon me is between me and God. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Whether or not they're sorry or not, if they would do it to me again in a second, if given them the opportunity, that's between them and God. But forgiveness is between God and me. And even if they're not sorry, and even if I turn my back on them, they would do the exact same thing again. I've got to forgive them in order to be healed from that wound, in order to grow, in order to love again. And if I choose not to forgive them, it it will create resentment and bitterness in my heart that will not simply destroy my relationship with them. That bitterness will destroy my relationship with God. It will destroy my faith. It will destroy my ability to give and receive love. It will wilt every relationship that ever comes into my life, and yours as well. We've got to forgive. You say, well, they don't deserve it. That's why it's called forgiving. We've got to extend grace. We've got to receive grace where we've wronged somebody, but then we have to extend grace where we have been wronged by somebody And again, I just want to reiterate this for emphasis sake. You say, but they're not sorry. It doesn't matter. What's important here is your healing. What's important is your wholeness. You've got to let them go. You've got to let them off the hook. How do you do that? You've got to pray for them. You know, Jesus never commanded our emotions. He never said, feel a certain way about somebody. Did you realize that? Jesus never commanded our emotions. He commanded our actions. He said, do good to those who are evil to you. Pray for those who curse you. Bless those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Do good to, pray, and bless. None of that has anything to do with how we feel. Those are all conscious decisions of the will. It's like taking medicine. And when we intentionally pray for, do good to, and bless, even if we don't feel like it, that's an act of surrender. We're going low. That's inviting the presence and the peace and the healing power of Christ to fill our heart. And sometimes forgiveness is very easy, right? You know, somebody out there in the street cusses me out and then says I'm sorry. I'm like, no problem, no problem. But the closer the relationships get, the deeper the wounds, sometimes forgiveness is a process. And I've noticed that when the Lord invites me into a process of living a daily surrendered life, of walking low, 
praying for my offenders, blessing them however I can, doing good however I can, then that invites his healing presence into my life that creates the deepest work in me than he's ever done before. When the healing process the Lord invites us into is just that, when it's a process, he's inviting us into the very deepest work in our lives. So this is an eternal perspective because we realize that the Lord has given us grace and so we extend grace to others. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's, it's totally a spiritual thing. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to pray for them. You've got to surrender your life to the Lord. You've got to pick up your cross daily. You've got to bless them. And here's what happens. You start making victory. You start making headway. All of a sudden, these people who wounded you and are sleeping like a baby, but just their face are keeping you awake at night because you've got this resentment that you're working through and this wound that you're working through... It's a process. Eventually, you realize you don't have to give it to them three times a day and, you know, five times at night in order to fall asleep. And then finally, you realize, you know what? You're only surrendering it to the Lord maybe a couple times a week. And then you might go three months without even thinking of them. And you truly want the best for them. And you realize that the Lord is healing you. And then out of nowhere, some trigger that you didn't even see coming, will come out of nowhere and just blindside you. And all of those emotions from the initial hurt just pour into your heart. And then you just, you're seething with anger and you're, you're hurt all over again. And you're mad all over again. And then you just begin the process again. But this time, the process isn't as laborious as it was the first time. And then eventually, you'll completely be healed. But it's a spiritual process. And if you really want some acceleration in this healing, if you really want some acceleration in this healing, and there are two things that you can do. One is to invite some brothers and sisters into your life who are confidential, who are mature in the Lord, and share this hurt, and let them put their hands on your shoulders, and let them pray for you, and oh, healing. Healing will flood your heart and mind. And then the second way to experience accelerated healing from these relational wounds, this is difficult. This is where only the, uh, only the deeply, deeply spiritual dare to go. And that's to look at your offender and then look behind them. You say, oh, the devil, the devil made him do it. Yeah, you know what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. But even look beyond that, if you'll have it, if you'll have it, if you'll accept it. And follow Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And pray, God, not my will, but your will be done. And I don't understand why you allowed this hurt to pass through your sovereign fingertips into my life, but you did, and I trust you that you are going to make something more beautiful out of it than if this wound never entered my heart. And when you entrust your heart and soul to the sovereignty of God who brings beauty out of the ashes, there's accelerated healing. And it's a mystery. God doesn't cause all things. But God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Everything is not beautiful to God. Obviously, there are things in this world that are atrocious. They are not beautiful to God. 
Scripture never says everything is beautiful to God. Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And if you'll entrust this relational wound and this offense to God, and if you pray for your offender, if you bless them every opportunity you get, even publicly, and if you do good to them when it's up to you, and you entrust your wound to the sovereignty of God, He will make everything beautiful in its time. And one day, you'll look back at that wound and you'll shudder, but you won't shudder at the thought that you endured it. You'll shudder at the thought of your life without it, because you wouldn't be who you are today without it. Oh, that's the truth. I look back at my life, (laughs) as Dickens wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Without a doubt, the best of my times were the worst of times, because God carried me through those seasons. And he makes everything beautiful in its time. And the third prayer, Lord, give me a heart at rest in you. When we dare to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, how humble is that? When we dare to pray for our offenders, I mean, can it get any more humble than that? That's Jesus on the cross. And we're walking in his footsteps. And then we experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And look at this in verse 9 through 11. Therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore, you look at the verses in front of it to see what therefore is therefore. And this therefore is there because Jesus humbled himself more than anybody has ever humbled himself. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we trust that Jesus Christ will lift us up. And therefore, our heart is at rest in him. There's a story about this fly who's in an airplane. And the fly is flapping its wings so hard. The airplane's like soaring up above the clouds. It's a 747 commercial airliner. And this fly... It's flapping its wings. Its face looks so nervous. It looks so worried. And then one of the passengers looks at the fly, and he says, well, why don't you just relax? Take it easy. You're flapping so hard. Just, just rest. And the fly says, I can never stop flapping my wings. Otherwise, the whole plane would go down. And how often do we think that our worrying, our stress, our anxiety, our controlling, our manipulating is holding all things up and holding all things together? We're not holding anything up. We're not holding anything together. Christ is holding all things together by the power of his word. Pride can manifest itself by people walking in arrogance. That's very recognizable to us, right? Pride can also manifest itself by people allowing their heart to be filled with anxiety because they think that that the weight of the world rests squarely upon their shoulders and it's all up to them. It's not up to any of us. It's up to Christ. That means that we can rest deeply at night. And he works on our behalf. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. I just recently noticed this. I think I was blinded to it because images from Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments are so, you know, ingrained in my mind. I've never noticed this before, but in Exodus 14, we read, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and here it is, all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it to dry land. While the Israelites were sleeping, God was parting the Red Sea during his, doing his work. 
All we have to do is rest in him, and he works on our behalf to part the Red Seas, to move the mountains, to bring repentance about in the heart of our offenders. That's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit job. You and I aren't the Holy Spirit. The Trinity has the Holy Spirit. He's there. That job's taken. He's never relinquishing that position. We're not the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to bring conviction. It's not our job to cause somebody to be sorry for what they've done. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to rest in Christ, trusting that he'll beautify our wound in his time. And to pray for our offender and love our offender and do good to them. And I just share this last verse because I was practicing resting. Um, I was just so encouraged by how the Israelites slept all night as the hand of the Lord drove back the Red Sea so that the next morning they saw their deliverance and they were able to walk across on dry ground. And it's been changing the way I go to sleep. Lord, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to rest in you tonight. And as I do, work on my behalf for your glory. And in my quiet time, I read Psalms, five psalms a day. If I don't get all five in, that's okay. It's quality, not quantity. But Psalm 80 has really resonated with me all week. In particularly verse 3, 7, and 19 of Psalm 80. And it says, Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine upon us, that we may be saved. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful, in fact, that I just felt led to spend time with the Lord. I spend time with the Lord every morning, but I wanted to spend more time with the Lord when the Lord is really ministering to me with this verse. And so I called Gino Saturday morning. I was on my way to men's group. And I said, Gino, I know it's short notice, like, you know, 10 minutes from now, but could you cover for me? And Gino said, sure. And I went and got a cup of coffee. And I wound up at Trinity Park. And I had my Bible. And I was reading, Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine upon us, that we may be saved. We've been having some bad weather, but this particular Saturday morning, or Friday, Saturday morning, just yesterday, was particularly beautiful. The sun was strong, and, and I just closed my eyes, and I felt the heat of the sun on my face, and I prayed, cause your face to shine upon us. I prayed, Lord, if, if the sun is this warm, I can't imagine how brilliant your true countenance must be. And just one glance of your countenance is all I need to provide for all of my needs. Just cause your face to shine upon me. Cause your face to shine upon our church. And as I was there basking in the presence of the Lord and basking in his love and basking in his glory, as I was resting in him, I knew that he was working for my good. And he was working to make all things beautiful. Jesus said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. We try to make it so worrisome and so stressful. We think the weight of the world rests on our shoulder. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. And this is what he requires of us, to rest in him. And allow him to work for our good and his ultimate glory. The book I been referring to a little bit lately, but a different section of it. Giglio's, I am not, but I know I am. He writes, when I live like I'm privileged, I've lost the plot. In other words, we're getting prideful. We're losing our humility. We're starting to think that the sample 
from Name That Tune as the whole song instead of just a sample. When I'm living like I'm privileged, I've lost the plot. In other words, when I start acting like I deserve a certain outcome or a higher standard of life, I fail to strike the fatal blow to self, and I'm living like I actually have the rights in this world apart from God. When I am demanding, I've lost the plot. Insisting that God and others meet my, my needs on my timetable that I see fit. When I act pompous, I've lost the plot. Thinking that I am somebody while only proving that I haven't had a good look at God today. When I crumble under pressure, I've lost the plot. Declaring that the outcome of life rests squarely on my shoulders and not his. I know a very gifted brother who won't use his gifts because the, the nervousness just consumes him too badly. He can't handle it. And what he needs, all he needs, is to get a good glimpse of the glory of God and realize all the pressure is on his shoulders, the Lord's shoulders, not his own. When I start protecting myself, my image, I've lost the plot. Marking turf as though it were actually mine and forgetting that everything I have comes from above. When I crave the spotlight for myself, I have lost the plot, losing sight of the storyline and the one true star. And every time I do it, I waste one of life's fleeting chances to make my life truly count by amplifying His majesty. When I fail to celebrate the success of others who are living for His fame, I have lost the plot, thinking that possibly we are in different teams when we are actually share the same supporting roles in the same story. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Screwtape Letters, Humility is, is, is not an intelligent man denying his intellect or a beautiful woman denying her beauty. Humility is saying, I'm going to build the biggest and most beautiful cathedral for his glory. Building the biggest and most beautiful cathedral, but then rejoicing no more and no less than if God built that cathedral through someone else. When I dwell on feelings of being unloved, unnoticed, or insignificant, I've lost the plot. Abandoning the miracle of knowing God on a first-name basis. Would you stand with me, please? Perhaps you just need a good death to yourself this evening. Perhaps you need to remember to pick up your cross and follow once again. Perhaps you need to realize that one of the greatest enemies that's attacking you and is attacking me is is ourselves. And our self and that flesh life is just trying to reassert itself And we need to say, no, I'm not the starring role in my story. The story is about him for his glory. And then that's when the things of this earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And we start living for an audience of one and counting our many, 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 many blessings. It's hard to have a grateful heart and a prideful heart at the same time. We read in Psalm chapter 100 in a prayer meeting before we came in here that we enter into the gates of the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. And we started going around the table, just saying things that we're thankful for. And if you really mean it, and if you're really grateful, and you're not just saying words to say words around a prayer table, but if you're really grateful and you're really thankful, it's hard to have a prideful heart when you're truly grateful for all that the Lord has given you and all that he's brought you through and all of the ways that he sustained you and all of the ways that he shows you mercy and grace. And not only is it difficult to have a prideful heart when we're truly grateful for the Lord, it's difficult to have 
a resentful heart, and it's difficult to have a pompous attitude, and it's difficult to have abrasive words or condescending words. And so, best place for any of us to be is low. How low can we go? Let's get low. Let's walk in humility and let God lift us up. Let Him lift us up. And so maybe you just need to come down this evening and maybe you just need to pray, oh God, give me an eternal perspective. Maybe you need to pray, oh God, give me a tender heart. Or maybe you need to pray, oh God, give me a heart that's at rest in you. This isn't an action step kind of thing. This is a transformation kind of thing. We all need to be knocked off of our high horse in some form or fashion by a fresh glimpse of his glory and his grace and his goodness and his steadfast love in our lives. So if you would bow your heads with me. I wonder how many of you have a little pride that you've detected in your heart that you could stand to be purged from. If you would just raise your hand. Okay then I just want to invite you to, to step out of the boat, so to speak, and, and come utilize this stage as an altar and present your body, your dreams, your ambitions, your wounds, your offenses, present your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice and say, here I am, God. And maybe Jesus pray, Lord, give me an eternal perspective. Give me a tender heart. Give my heart rest in you while you work for my good, making all things beautiful. Let's just respond to the Lord.